Reading from the scriptures from the book of Acts, chapter 6, 1 through 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Thanks, Tess. Good morning. One of the great gifts that God gave our physical bodies is an immune system. You know, when bacteria and viruses and other diseases come and attack the body, the immune system works hard to isolate whatever that attacker is and take care of it to kill it, to get rid of it, so that the body can stay healthy and strong. It's a wonderful thing. But in our fallen world, sometimes our immune system goes awry. Sometimes it begins to attack healthy tissues in our own body. This is called an autoimmune disease. Many of you, including my wife Jeannie, have one or more autoimmune diseases where your own immune system begins to attack your own body. And when this happens, it wreaks havoc on the health of the body. We're in Acts chapter 6 as we're working our way through the life of the early church. And the church at this point was doing well. It was healthy. It was strong. It had fended off different attacks from Satan from both outside the church and within, outside getting the apostles thrown in jail and perhaps taking the leadership out. But God protected them and The church made it through that, was healthy and strong, and then inner attack from Ananias and Sapphira, Satan trying to plant sin within the body that would corrupt the body, but the church dealt with it quickly and well, and so the church at this point was doing well. But again, Satan doesn't rest, and he again attacks the body internally, but in this case, in our passage today, we see the attack is another internal attack an attack of conflict within the body. You see, if Satan can get one part of the church body to attack another part of the church body, like an autoimmune disease, trying to kill healthy tissue, fight amongst ourselves, then Satan can undermine the health of the church, and that's why it's been one of his major attacks throughout history. But as we see how the early church responds to that, we'll learn some things about how to deal with conflict. And we'll also highlight three marks 
These aren't all inclusive, but they are three significant marks of a healthy church. This is important for us evaluating our own church as well as other churches. And perhaps most important, it's important for us to see how we, as individual members of the church, as part of the body of Christ, can participate with the health of the body and help make the church stronger. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our physical bodies and how most of the time our immune systems seem to work well to fight off things that would try to harm us. But in our church body, this one and the church throughout the world, it's easy to see how if we attack one another within the church, how that would cause problems and wreak havoc. So I pray, Lord, that today, as we look at this passage, that we would learn some things that would help us, each one of us in this room, be a healthy part of the body, to deal with conflict in a healthy way, to participate in the body in a way that would cause the church to flourish as it did in the first century. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is this internal conflict, this attack that Satan throws at the church. Well, we see it in verse 1 right off the bat. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, so the church was doing well, it was healthy, people were coming to Christ, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the church is growing, it's healthy, but as we all know, growth whether it's in a business or in a family or in a church, causes certain problems. It it raises logistical problems, space problems, resource problems. You know, you add a few more kids, you got to get a bigger car, you got to get a bigger house, that kind of thing to your family. It's true in a business. You got to figure out insurance. You got to figure out how to handle all these new people. And in a church, as it's growing, More people are at it. It just adds more issues to deal with. Space problems, resource problems, people problems. And in this case, as the church was growing, there was a legitimate injustice going on in the early church. Some of the widows were being overlooked. The church had a wonderful system of helping those that didn't have the income they needed, and so they cared for the widows. But a group of widows was being overlooked. That's an injustice as things grew quickly. And it turns out, as we look at the passage, it was a specific group of widows who were being overlooked, those from Greek backgrounds. Now, in those days, the church was all Jews, right? They were in Jerusalem. That's all that had come to Christ so far. They hadn't reached out to the Gentiles. We'll get to that as we go on in the book of Acts. But it's all Jews now. But there were primarily two groups of Jews in the early church at this point. There were the Hebraic Jews, the those from Israel, those who had been raised in Israel, those who spoke Aramaic, which was a sister language to Hebrew, who grew up in Jewish culture and they lived out Jewish culture. They were Christians, yes, but they were still part of their culture. 
The other group were the Grecian Jews, those that had come, had moved to Israel from different parts of the Roman Empire. Their first language was not Aramaic, it was Greek. And they had been steeped in Greek culture, other cultures than the Jewish culture. And so they brought those cultural differences with them. They had language differences, culture differences, ritualistic differences. And so as these two groups merged as they were coming to Christ, it created a certain amount of tension and conflict. They were different. And as always, differences can create tension. Why is that? Well, I like the way David Roper put it. The main reason is we want everything to center on us. I'm the only thing that really matters in the world. And by extension, my kind are the only kind that matter. So if someone comes from another culture or the color of their skin is different or they're not as educated, we say they're not my kind. Discrimination involves an unrealistic division in the human race. What we are doing is dividing the human race in an arbitrary manner that God never intended. So we discriminate. We create these differences because we're self-centered, right? But God wants us to look at each other differently. I like the way George MacDonald put it. It's a good challenge to us. It's, he says this, in God's children, the diversity is infinite. He does not repeat his creations. Every one of his children differs from every other. And in every one, the diversity is lovable. Think about that perspective. That's just a different perspective on diversity, right? In every one, the diversity is lovable as opposed to you're not my kind. It's wow. I want to get to know how you're different from me and learn to love and value the difference. That is God's plan in the body of Christ, right? But notice what's happening in the early church. Because the Grecian Jews were not the widows, um, these Christians were not getting fed, were not getting their fair share. You know, they were, and in particular, this adds to the problem is that they were from other places, so they left their family behind, many of them, and they brought just them and their husbands, their immediate family to Israel to live, to be near the temple. And then their husbands had died. So they didn't have family to support them. Many of them were poor and destitute. It was a difficult place to be. But notice how they handled it. It says that they were a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. They were being overlooked. That was legitimate. But rather than going to the leadership and saying, hey, you forgot us. <laughs> we need food, too. They started murmuring. That word for complaint is gossiping, murmuring behind the scenes, talking against the Hebraic Jews saying, yeah, what's wrong with them? How come they get fed and we don't? Why do they get more than us? We're being discriminated against. It's unfair. I can't stand them. They think they're better than us because they grew up here in Israel. And they're talking behind the scenes, not going to the leadership, but they're murmuring and gossiping and complaining behind the scenes. Not that any of us would ever react that way, right? You see, they should have gone straight to the leadership and said, hey, we have a problem. Can we get it fixed? But no, a natural tendency too often is to gossip and murmur behind 
others' backs rather than going to them to deal with the problem. Let me just say that sometimes we think if we're in a healthy church, there shouldn't be any conflict. And let me just say that that is completely wrong and unrealistic. Because when God throws us together and we've got all our backgrounds and we're all in process and many of us just have a long ways to grow and we haven't learned to forgive and love well and all that, of course we're going to have conflict. The mark of a healthy church is not that there's no conflict, but that you're learning to handle the conflict in a wise way that resolves the conflict. So how did they do it? What's the mark? Of a healthy church, a wise resolution of conflict. Well, let's see how they resolved it, because I think it's brilliant, actually. The 12 apostles clearly heard about the conflict. The rumor was going around. It was it was being spread and uh, wasn't hidden very well. And, you know, what we might have done is just jump in and condemn somebody. Right. Stop it. Knock it off. Or I think what often we do with conflicts. Is just. Ignore it. Kind of hope it goes away. (laughs) Because we don't want to deal with conflict, right? But notice what they do. They immediately deal with it. The 12 apostles, in fact, gathered the whole community, the whole church community, because this was impacting the whole church community. The rumors had spread. Everybody knew about it. It wasn't going to just go away. And so they had a brilliant solution. The apostles thought this through and they said, you know what we'll do? We will ask them, the people, to pick seven godly men from the Grecian Jews, those who have been slighted. How do we know that that's who they chose? Well, that's what most scholars think, because all seven of these men have Greek names. So they were probably from, we don't know 100%, but probably they were, at least most of them, if not all of them, from the Greek Jews themselves. So they were putting their own people in charge of the distribution of food now. And notice what they say. They say, okay, and we want you to specifically pick out people who are full of the spirit and full of wisdom. Now, I might have, we might have said, okay, this is a big job. The church is growing fast. We need to take care of this. So we want people with good business backgrounds. We want good administrators. You know, we want people that are going to do the job well. But that's not what they say. They say, you know what? This is a people problem. We do need people who can handle the job. But mostly what we need more than anything is people who are full of the spirit. In other words, people that have learned over time to depend on the Lord, to walk with him. And people who are wise, who have grown in wisdom. In other words, they have the wisdom and the spiritual insight, maturity, to be able to handle the people problems that are involved in this particular issue. I think that's brilliant. (laughs) And then they gave them the full authority to carry out this ministry. So that if there's any problem, they would go to their own leaders. The Grecian widows didn't get everything. They could go to their own leaders whom they already knew to get the help they need. You see, conflict is inevitable when you throw people together, which the church is is a mishmash of all kinds of people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different personalities, different perspectives. 
And the letters of the New Testament are full of the writers dealing with church conflict and problems, right? I mean, if you read the New Testament closely, there were, there were groups that were forming. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. There were conflicts over food, whether you should eat food sacrificed to idols or not. There were conflicts over different morality issues. What's most important and what should we emphasize and what is God really saying and what's he not saying? And all of that was true in the New Testament. So when we come to church, we get into trouble sometimes because often we step into a church and we think, okay, is this going to be the place where finally... People really love each other and there's no conflict and we all get along and it's great. Obviously, that's never going to happen, right? (laughs) Because we're people. We're all in process. None of us, in case you didn't know this, none of us is Jesus, (laughs) right? So it means I will sin against you and you will sin against me. And we've got to learn to deal with that. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was executed by the Nazis, has helped me a lot to kind of think this through. So bear with me as I read some from his book, Life Together, which is an excellent study of community and what it's meant to be. And he says this, he says, the serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be. And we'll try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. (laughs) Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely we must be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Do you see what he's saying? He says, yeah, we all come in with wanting the community, the fellowship to be a certain way and have our needs met. And this is going to be great. And we all do that. But he says the quicker that you get totally disillusioned with that and realize this is not a place where it's going to be perfect and it's going to meet my needs. The sooner you come to that disillusionment, the better, he says. He goes on to say, he who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the Christian community, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ, long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. You see, we come and we say, not I demand that this church be a certain way. Rather, it's thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to be together in community and learn to love each other and grow together as the fellowship, as the community of Christ. So we thank God for giving us brethren who live by his call and by his forgiveness and his promise We don't complain of what God doesn't give us. We rather thank God for what he does give us daily. And is not what has been given enough? Brothers who will go on living with us through sin and need under the blessing of his grace. Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother? 
with whom I, too, stand under the word of Christ, will not, and, and get this last part, will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ. You see, what makes a community work isn't because there's no conflict, but it's because we all realize that we're just sinners who were forgiven by Christ. We're all in process. And so we get the joy of learning to walk with each other and forgive one another. You see, the real community of Christ is a forgiven community that is learning to forgive one another. Remember Jesus's words in the Lord's Prayer where he says, and uh, well, let me read it because I want to I want to quote several parts of it. Matthew chapter six, where he gives the Lord's Prayer. Verse 12, he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then verse 14, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. I don't know about you, but that that sounds harsh. Unless you realize that we all sit under forgiveness. That's what bonds us together. His forgiveness of us. And if that's the case, then, of course, we will extend forgiveness to one another because We know we all need it, too, every one of us. So a healthy church is a forgiven community that has learned to forgive one another. So the challenge for us this morning between you and God is this. Do you have resentment you won't let go of? Somebody you're envious of or jealous of or angry at, and you just won't let it go. God calls you to forgive as you have been forgiven. Or do you have conflict with someone that you just can't seem to resolve? Well, get godly and wise help to work it through. Those kinds of things can divide the church and weaken the church unless they're dealt with. A mark of a healthy church is that conflict is dealt with wisely and resolved where possible. Second mark we see here in this passage of a healthy church is that the leaders are devoted to the word and to prayer. Verse 2 and 4. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of of the word. You see, the temptation here would be for the apostles who were very gifted and had the spirit to step in and take care of handling all the tables, make sure the widows were taken care of, make sure the job was done right. But they realized that if they did that, it would distract them. It would be neglecting or forsaking, as the word says in verse 2 their true calling, which was to focus, to be devoted to the word and to prayer. And they knew that would not be right. I think this is so important for the church today because today so many pastors see their job as essentially being CEOs of the church, to run the business of the church. 
After all, that's what a lot of people want. They want a a pastor to uh, run great programs, always be available for hospital visits or anything else, and on and on. After all, pastors are hired guns, right? We pay their salary to do the ministry, and they need to do it. And in that kind of environment, staying devoted as a pastor to the word, to studying it and teaching it, and to be devoted in prayer is very, very difficult. I've been a senior pastor in three different churches, and in each case, there was a lot of expectation, a lot of pressure to do all the ministry. But I think that distracts us from the word and prayer. I appreciate what N.T. Wright says about this, where he says, The temptation for leaders in the, in the church from the earliest days until now has always been to heave a sigh of relief at being spared the spiritually and mentally demanding task of preaching and teaching, of explaining scripture, opening up its great narrative and its tiny details, applying it this way and that, enabling people to live within its story and make its energy their own. Running committees, though tricky at times, is not nearly so demanding. Sometimes people even dismiss the ministry of biblical teaching as a kind of optional extra. But the early apostolic testimony stands solidly. The task of a pastor is the word of God and prayer. Let me just say, that's why I've learned over time, (laughs) I've had to learn this, that I have to guard my time in the word and my time in prayer very carefully. If you want to meet with me on a Monday morning, or a Wednesday morning, or a Thursday morning, I probably won't do it. Because I guard that time, my study time, in the Word. And then I very rarely take early morning meetings, because that's my personal time to be in the Word in a devotional way, but also that's my prayer time to pray for all of you, pray for the ministries of the church, pray for what God is doing. I love meeting with you, and I have time to do that, usually in the afternoons. But I do guard those times in the word and prayer. Why is it so important for a pastor to be devoted, not just fitted in somewhere, but to be devoted first and foremost to the word and prayer? Well, look at it this way. Like most pastors, when I was a young pastor, I thought the ministry really depended on me. So I was really busy. I worked hard. I was the first one in the office and the last one to leave. It was all about my work, my availability, my planning, etc. And to be honest, I didn't have a whole lot of time for prayer. But as I've grown, I've seen that the ministry is not about what I'm doing. It's about what God's doing. It's about his communicating his truth through the word to his people. So our thinking can be changed and we can become the people of God, the community of God, through the living power of the word that's carefully studied and carefully taught and applied one-on-one in small groups and in large groups like this. And then in prayer, seeking for God to work in people's lives because that is what's effective. That is what is going to change people's lives. You see, a prayerless pastor, and according to all the surveys, there's a lot of them, a prayerless pastor is a self-dependent pastor, and that will not be a healthy church. 
So a mark of a healthy church is leaders who are devoted, truly devoted to the word and prayer above all else. And that's why we teach expositionally, for example, why we teach through books of the Bible, because we want to make sure we're working through the scriptures, hearing from God, letting him speak to us what he has for us. Personally, I would be terrified to teach topically, to have to figure out what everybody needs to hear. I I like letting God figure that out as we work through books of the Bible. So the second mark of a healthy church is the leadership devoted to the word and to prayer. The third mark we see in this passage is that everybody's finding a place to serve. Everybody's beginning to use their gifts to minister to one another. I like how in verse 3, They chose these men, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge. And so they chose these seven men, specific men. They were willing to serve tables. And what we see later in the book of Acts is two of these men are brought up again, right? Stephen and Philip. And they had a great ministry. Why? Because they were willing to serve. They were just willing to even serve tables. And because they were willing to do that, God opened other doors for ministry. I've seen so many of you who have just said, I'm just willing to serve somewhere. And you've stepped into Sunday school. You've stepped into coffee ministry. You've stepped into hosting a Bible study. You've stepped into the service ministry. You've helping people move or whatever. And out of that, God begins to help show you what your gifts are and expands your ministry in a variety of ways. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. See, the danger here was that the apostles would try to do everything. But that's not how God made the body of Christ to work. The body of Christ is meant to be all of us using our gifts to serve and love one another. Ray Sedman describes the church this way. He said, Too often, the church is like a professional football game. 60,000 people in the stands who desperately need exercise. (laughs) Watching 22 people on the field who desperately need rest. (laughs) See, the body of Christ is not meant to work that way. (laughs) We all are gifted. Each of you, if you have Jesus Christ in you, has a spiritual gift, at least one or more, that God wants to use you to minister to one another in the body here and in the community. Might be gifts of teaching or service or mercy or encouragement, gifts of healing, and on and on and on. They're listed in the scriptures. That's why we emphasize so much in this church, Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12. And God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So leadership to equip the saints, that's all of you, for the work of the ministry. Who does the ministry? Yeah, you guys. My job, pastor's job, elder's job is to equip you to teach the word, to come alongside you and help you find the resources you need to be able to find your gifts and serve. That's what makes a healthy church. Every one of you is gifted in some way, and I love seeing all the ways many of you serve here, and that is awesome. You see, the church in verse 7 is really healthy and growing because they dealt with this attack. 
this conflict. Notice verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. I love that. The priests, those who were supported by the Pharisees and the high priests and, and who worked in the temple, as they heard the good news about Jesus, they thought, everything we're seeing in the temple, it's fulfilled in Jesus. They saw it. And many, many of the priests, it says, were coming to Christ. What makes a healthy church? Well, at least three marks. We could name others from other passages, but from this passage, at least three marks. A healthy church wisely resolves conflict. A healthy church has leaders who truly are devoted to the word and to prayer. And a healthy church is one where everyone's finding a place to serve. How are we doing it, Cole? Well, like every church, we can grow. We need to grow. Pray for us. But as you pray for us, consider what your part is in helping us all be the kind of church that is healthy and growing. Are there things you need to give over to the Lord? Resentments, conflicts you haven't dealt with. Or have you stepped back and not found a place to serve? All of that will be part of helping the church be healthy and strong, where each of us is learning also to realize what bonds us together is our forgiveness in Christ. And that forgiveness is something that we are learning more and more to extend to one another as we sin against each other, as we face conflict, as we struggle with issues, as we forgive as we've been forgiven in Christ, the church will be healthy and strong and growing. So we want to take communion together now to celebrate that forgiveness that bonds us together, that's formed us into this community, the community of Jesus Christ. So let me pray, and then we'll take communion together. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here, and we thank you that you loved us enough to come, Lord Jesus, and die for us so that we could be forgiven. We confess that too often it's all about us. We want to be the center. But you've forgiven us. You've taken our sin and our punishment on yourself so that we could be forgiven and so that we could learn to be a community where we are extending that forgiveness to one another. Lord, as we now take communion, we celebrate what you have done for us, knowing that we don't deserve your mercy we don't deserve your forgiveness. So we gather here, bonded together, gratefully receiving the gift of life through Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.